My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our topic today is the role of apology in mediation. Who joins us is Dr. Jirda Kern. Jirda has been employed as a lecturer in the management discipline for over 20 years. Prior to joining NUIG, Jirda worked as an associate lecturer for the National College of Ireland and as an independent management consultant. Jirda is actively involved in researching the lived experience of hospitality workers in Ireland with a view to highlighting issues and promoting positive change. She is also actively involved in research into the workplace mediation as a dispute resolution process. She leads a national level workplace mediation research group housed within the Kennedy Institute of Conflict Intervention at Minute University. Jirda is the Programme Director of the Masters in Human Resources. She represents the College of Business, Public Policy and Law as a steering committee member of the University of Sanctuary initiative aimed at making NYG a welcome place for refugees, asylum seekers and members of our travelling community. Jirda, welcome back to the Workplace Podcast. Thank you so much. Gosh, I'm impressed with my own introduction. I am also <laughs> impressed and I was very impressed with your research that you did with uh, Alec Coakley, who's also a former participant of the Mediation Foundation of Ireland course that I part of as well. I find this study fascinating. It's done from an Irish uh, context, which is great. And we often, I suppose, don't really understand what an apology is on I was reflecting on this. I had to talk to you about this uh, paper. You knew I was very eager to talk to you on this uh, as much as of all of our conversations. And I was thinking about my own relationship with apologies. Mm. And where I learned an apology was, I would say, through my mammy, Mary Corliss right? uh, in Newcastle Road. And I remember saying I was sorry for something. And then she go, what are you sorry for? And then there was this blank stare across comes my face and I go I didn't know what and I just wanted to maybe escape a feeling or to avoid I just wanted the the situation or that intensity to be over with and then I became obviously more curious in the paper then about how this really plays out what does a good apology look like what are the key components or elements and what is the value of it in in mediation since we're both passionate about that so I, I'd like to ask you the question, then, why did you develop this interest in apologies? So the paper, as you say, is around the role of apology or the, the effectiveness of, of apology in the context of mediation. So how I first developed the interest was a number of years ago, I went back to school. So I work full time for NUI Galway. And as part of our further education program, I was um, allowed to go to Maynooth one day a week for a year to do a postgraduate diploma in mediation. And, oh, it was just wonderful to be back in the classroom. And, well, every day for me is a learning day because I live in a university. But it was just wonderful to be back on the other side of the desk and to be just have the opportunity for learning. And so we had continuous assessment as part of that uh, program. And one of the essays that I did was on apology. Now, this is nearly 10 years ago. So I did an essay on apology and I was I became fascinated. You know, it's like one of those things you don't really think about until you are forced to think about it. And so the assignment forced me to think about it. And I started to read and write about apology. And um, I became really fascinated about it, not just in the context of mediation, but as an act of human communication and its potential impact positive and negative as an act of human communication. So 
the thing for me is that apology is relevant to every single human being. And like yourself, I had to start asking myself that question. You know, what what role have I played in apology? And I realized when I discovered the five or the six or the seven steps in apology, I'd never actually properly apologized to anybody in my life for anything. So it all of that, you know, from a human level began to interest me. When you start to read about apology, for example, you see that there's a link to all of the world religions make reference to apology. Um, so there's a whole literature around religion and apology. I'm not practicing any particular religion, but I found that fascinating that it extends across all cultures, all religions, all countries, all humanity. Um, apology is relevant. So it started then and then it really took myself and Alec and Alec is a friend and colleague of mine and uh, a conflict resolution practitioner. So a brilliant partnership in the sense that I'm coming from the academic. He's coming from the practitioner and together it makes a very uh, accessible piece of work. But it took us a long time to do it, you know, and you kind of fall in and it's how do you put the boundaries on what you're trying to say? But as you said, it's unique um, in terms of no one has ever written about apology and mediation in Ireland before. So it's, you know, and we were talking to Irish uh, or practitioners based in Ireland. So it's it's very, con- you know, it's very local in that sense, but with a global and an individual uh, relevance. And I am also a former alumni or alumni of Minutes, and I did a similar assignment to, as well, which was fascinating. We definitely know what a fake apology looks like or when somebody doesn't mean it. So maybe it'd be useful then to explore what does what are the key components of a good apology? How do we know that we're doing it right? Yeah. So I've kind of, you know, being an academic, I've done my homework and I've got kind of scribbled notes, you know, around a lot of this. So before I answer that question, um, I just want to share a couple of quotes from the literature on apology because I think they're really powerful. So Lazar said in 1995, a genuine apology offered and accepted is one of the most profound interactions of civilized people. I think that's really that's a short, you know, it's a short enough sentence, but it's a really powerful sentence. And Lee Taft said it's a it's a performative utterance that forms the centerpiece in a moral dialective between sorrow and forgiveness that serves to lubricate settlement discussions. Now, that's a bit posher in terms of academic language, but he's placing a t- apology between sorrow and forgiveness and also saying that it's it's critical in terms of dispute resolution. Mm. So so that's really interesting. So when I started reading apology about apology and, you know, what you're saying there about your mom and she said, you know, what are you sorry for? She was referring to one of the early steps in a genuine apology or a proper or good or profound apology. So various writers have different number of steps, but there's common themes. Right. So number one is um, you have to acknowledge and name the offense. That's the what are you sorry for? So you have to acknowledge and name the offense. Secondly, you have to take responsibility for your cause of that offence. Thirdly, you acknowledge the effect that that what you did had on the other person. And sometimes people can do things, you know, inadvertently or not attending to offend. But once it's pointed out to you, uh, you have to acknowledge it, take responsibility for it and acknowledge the effect that it's had on the other person. Then there's the performative utterance, which is actually expressing sorrow. It's whatever the phrase is. Um, and it doesn't have to be those words, I'm sorry. But you need to say some words that acknowledge the offence. You can offer explanations, but they're not excuses. So particularly if it wasn't intended, you might explain why it happened or why you said what you did, but you're not making excuses. So you might say what had happened before that had triggered something for me in my past. And I, I, I shot from the hip without really thinking about it. So you can offer explanations, but you're not minimizing the hurt and you're not um, you're not making an excuse. Apology. And this is really important. And this is the bit where I probably was not good at before. You have to expose your vulnerability. So the important thing about apology is uh, it's not you're not doing it for yourself and you're not expecting to be forgiven or for your apology even to be accepted. You have to make yourself vulnerable and say mea culpa. I did this. I I see that I did it. I see the effect that it had. I'm opening myself up for you to turn around and say, well, 
you know, beep you uh, and turn and walk in the other direction. That should not, it's a factor. It should, it should be a selfless act, not a selfish act, if it's going to be a good apology. And then the last bit is around, you know, making some kind of commitment that you're not going to do it again um, or taking some kind of action, uh, you know, to show that you're sorry because actions can speak louder than words. And so in some cultures, it's literally an eye for an eye, you know, or a tooth for a tooth. You know, you have to make take some action to show that you're actually sorry. Yeah. And so what this is raising in my head is you often hear state apologies you know, and one of the ones that I refer to in the article is the the UK, the British state apology for Bloody Sunday. Um, in my view, and ticking the boxes, an example of a good apology. But if governments apologise for things, and this was in the news only yesterday, that there was an apology by the HSE for the um, for the neglect of young people with mental illness down the south of our country. I haven't seen the details, but if you make an apology. And then you stand in the way of redress. If you if you then block redress, yeah. then that's, you know, that's adding insult to injury. If it's to be a genuine apology, then there has to be some action out of that apology or redress or commitment to do things differently in the future. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. I think that genuine and authentic motive behind an apology is really important. It's a bit like what Enda Kenny did, our former Taoiseach, that's our Prime Minister uh, in Ireland, just for, for our international listeners, who made an apology uh, on behalf of the Irish government uh, against, uh, I suppose, the church and the, um, I suppose, the abuse that was going on there for for many decades, and that brings me to the point then of of these motives behind the apology are so crucial. There are some people who say, "I'm sorry that you felt that way." It's the the positive motive rather than the cynical motive, you know, and sometimes people will apologize for the wrong motive. It could be to save face. It could be to minimize their punishment. Um, and that's not a good place to start, um, you know, and sometimes people will script an apology to make it look like they're apologizing when they're not really apologizing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's back to what I said about it has to be selfless. You're exposing your vulnerability and saying, you don't have to accept my apology. I have no control over that. I cannot yeah. ask it or demand it. All I'm showing is that I am opening myself up and saying, I screwed up. I did wrong. This is what I did wrong. Um, this is the impact that I can see it had on you. Um, but you're not expecting anything in return. There used to be a time where, say, medical malpractice, they'd never apologize um, you know, it was literally they would not it would never apologize because their legal advice would be don't apologize because you're accepting liability and therefore you're going to uh, that's going to contribute to the settlement. Now they apologize. Um, now, whether it's genuine or not depends on what happens afterwards. So apology has almost been commodified to a certain extent in, in certain circumstances. And also it's been trivialized you know because as we said in the paper you bump into someone in the supermarket and you say you're sorry or you know you're five minutes late for an appointment and you say you're sorry you know we, we it's abusing the word you know because it's it's trivializing the word although it's kind of automatic it comes to us automatically until you're conscious of it that's a habit I used to have for many years growing up I you know you were say if it was a crowded pub or something like that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. You know, and it's it's comes out of from the Irish culture piece so easily that we apologize. Yeah. And and people go, What are you apologizing for? And that brings me then to what has happened uh with Prince Andrew. Like his apology was that real afterwards, and now he wants to be the champion for sex traffickers, even though he has acknowledged nothing to do with his own behavior or anything inappropriate and what he's put those people through uh, and drag it out and all these various different things so again we can see that there's the motives behind that may not be genuine 
And that's to minimise punishment, you know, and he probably would have been advised as to how to handle that. Uh, as it turns out, badly advised because it backfired pretty, pretty dramatically on him. Yeah. Um, you know, but I've I've seen apologies like there was there was um, another one we refer to in the paper is Tiger Woods when he was apologizing for his um, affairs and, uh, you know, all of the carry on. This is this must be about 10 years ago. And he comes out on stage and someone has scripted the different parts for him. And yet that that notion of genuineness, you know, there's something in us where we can pick up whether an apology is genuine or not, even if it's beautifully worded. There's something about it, the body language or something or just an intuitive sense. We can pick up whether someone is genuine or not. And there are people who have apologized and they're they're not eloquent and they're not, you know, their English isn't perfect and their words aren't perfectly chosen, but we can sense that the apology is genuine. So it's interesting, you know, that that human d- dimension of apology where the receiver, there's the giver and there's the receiver and there's the dynamic between the two that sometimes work and sometimes doesn't work. And even if an apology is genuinely given, it may not be accepted because the receiver may not be ready to to forgive or may not be ready to accept that apology. And that's absolutely their prerogative and shouldn't be a factor in your willingness to apologize genuinely. Um, so the two parties have to be ready, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, uh, as we looked at in the paper, there's a lot of kind of moderating factors that will influence, you know, the impact of apology. Yeah. And it is to do with that sentiment, isn't it? Because you can, that comes across in people's, the micro expressions and the body language, it has to be congruent. And you talked about those moderating factors. What might they be? So timing is obviously one. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can apologize too soon, you know, for something and you can apologize too late. So there are some circumstances where the apology needs to be instant and you know, heartfelt and genuine. There are other times where the hurt is so bad, you're going to have to wait because the person is not ready to hear it. The apology for Bloody Sunday was years and years after the actual event. I think that's a good example because there's there's a link to a video clip, I think, in the paper. You can see the families because it was put on a big screen in the main square in Belfast. And you can see the families, the reaction on their faces. And it was accepted as genuine. And now there were problems afterwards in terms of, of what happens next. But but it was accepted as genuine. And I think it was genuine because on the 50th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, David Cameron talks about writing that apology. And he basically sent everybody out of his office and he said to himself, what am I going to, what do I want to say here? You know, mm. and unjustified and unjustifiable is the, is the phrase that, that everybody latched onto. So timing is definitely one. The degree of trust between the parties, right? So, and, and the nature of our previous relationship. So if I know that, if I know about you and I know you, and I know that this doesn't sit with what I know about you, if that trust isn't there, it's not going to work. Um, power balance is important because, you know, I may feel obliged to accept your apology because you're a powerful person. Um, uh, you know, so power balance is important. How intense is the dispute? So if it's a relatively minor dispute, uh, then it's easier to apologize. You know, uh, if it's a big hurt, then, you know, you're going to have to put more work into it. Um, culture is important. Religion is important. Personality is important. You know, and I we don't talk much about this in the paper and I haven't done the research, but it's something I'd really be interested to do. I was thinking about this the other day. You know, the um, the Kilman, Thomas Kilman yeah. uh, conflict styles questionnaire where people are competitive or they're, you know, collaborative. And I was thinking it'd be fascinating to see if there's um you know, if there's a connection between your degree of assertiveness and your degree of cooperativeness and your willingness to apologize and your ability to apologize, mm-hmm. you know, because I think there's definitely a personality dimension. And I think there are people who don't have it in them to apologize because yeah. of, of personality dimensions. And certainly if there are personality disorders like um, sociopathy or psychopathy or um, or narcissism, you know, I think there are people who just don't have it in them to apologize, train them as much as you like. I don't think they have it in them. And I suppose the critical thing there is an inability to empathize. Yeah. 
So in order to apologize genuinely, you have to put yourself in the other person's shoes, even if you don't agree with them. And you have to feel that pain. You have to see, acknowledge that pain and see that pain and feel compassion and empathy. And that's that contributes to your ability to apologize. Isn't that true when you're someone kind of go, okay, I see how you felt like that is very different to go. Well, I'm sorry that you felt like that. So even though it's very similar in the wording and the phrasing, how it's coming across, that empathy is very different. So there's one an example I often share with my students, and uh, it's an example of apology and mediation that was told to me by the mediator themselves. And this was a case of um, a deaf woman who worked for a financial institution. So she's deaf and her partner's deaf. And after years of trying, they have a baby and the baby is hearing. And at the time, the medical people said to them, there's a new technology in terms of communicating with the the baby that's revolutionary, but you need to get, you need to devote time to it and you need to get trained in it. Um, And so she applied for leave of absence, unpaid leave of absence from her job. At the time, the policy of the institution was no leave of absence, no circumstances, no way. So she was refused leave of absence. And she actually made a complaint to the uh, the WRC on the grounds of disability discrimination. So I, I talked to the mediator about that actual um, mediation. And she said to me, you know, the deaf woman came to the mediation and she brought a med- uh, an interpreter with her. But she didn't need the interpreter because she was so passionate about telling her story that, you, you know, you had to concentrate. You could hear what she was saying and it was better to hear it from her. And on the other side, the financial institution was represented by senior HR manager. Mm. So as you know, in mediation, she goes first. She talks about what happened, what the impact of what happened, how it made her feel, the consequences for her family, very passionately because it it hurt so much and it affected them so much. And when she's finished, the mediator turns to the other party and the HR manager is in tears and says, I am so, so sorry. I came to this without really being properly briefed about the background to the to, to what had gone on. And the mediator said it was game over. You know, it was like they almost sat back and said that's game over because what happened was the financial institution changed their policy. She got her leave. Uh, there was a, a substantial donation to a deaf charity as a result of all this. And that's that's the reason that apology is so powerful in mediation is the opportunity for the person to use their own voice to say, this is what happened. This is the impact that it had. This is how it made me feel. And sometimes that's enough to trigger a genuine uh, heartfelt apology that follows those seven steps without even realizing it intuitively. And that's it. You know, we're we're done you know, she chose to accept the apology and that was the end of that dispute. It's that sense of genuineness and sincerity that is is pretty fundamental, no matter how eloquent you are with words or how fluent you are. And often if you're really genuine, you're going to be stuttering and stammering, you know, because you're just you're just caught. You're caught in the moment and you haven't time to think, oh, what's the best way to say this? You know, um, but if it's genuine, that'll come across. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. And speak about moments. I reminded me of that article I did for my assignment. Uh, Is the moment ripe in mediation? When it comes to apologies then, why is, is mediation particularly suited to the role of apologies? So in terms of the other conflict resolution processes, it's ideal um, because some of the unique features of mediation. And again, we talk about this in the actual article. So mediation is voluntary. You know, so the parties are in mediation because they want to be there. Um, it's confidential. So it's a safe space where people can uh, can apologize. It's informal. It's confidential. Um, the, the parties themselves have autonomy over the process. The mediator is simply there as a facilitator to move them towards resolution if that's where they want to go. Um, but the parties, it's the parties have autonomy over the process. The whole thing about voice is really important allowing the parties to give voice to uh, to what happened, 
and what impact did it have and how did it make you feel? Um, you know, the fact that they can agree between them in that confidential space and very little of it needs to be documented. So it, it just has a unique, a unique, as I says in the paper, fertile soil. It's fertile soil for apology that you won't get with other dispute resolution processes. It doesn't really happen in court. You know, it doesn't really happen in arbitration, not to the same extent um, but mediation is 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 very right. That's not to say <laughs> that it works well every time. So, um, you know, the, what the evidence showed in terms of this paper is that mediators will say that that apology often features prominently. So sometimes you'll get people coming into pre-mediation and saying, you know, well, see here, I want an apology. I want it in blood. I want it yeah. now before we move any further. And so that can actually be an impediment to mediation. But this is where the skill of the mediator comes in, because they then have to use their skill to uh, to stop that um, demand for an apology uh, becoming an impediment to the process. And one of the ways they do that is it's about looking at the um, the stated positions beneath the stated positions to find the needs. So if you can find out why does somebody feel that that need why are they making that demand for an apology because they're hurt because they felt disrespected because they felt they were treated badly if you get into those things the demand for an apology subsides what they actually need is recognition of hurt and an acknowledgement by the other person that they they cause that hurt and a commitment to doing things differently and you can get all of those things without forcing someone to say the two words i'm sorry I'm really interested in this piece now. You were talking about someone demanding someone else to apologize. Yeah. And I, I recently just did a podcast with Cindy Noble, the pioneer of conflict coaching. Right. So this, this is the question I have is, can you coach someone then to apologize? We were talking a little while earlier about there's some people who just don't have it in them to apologize. But we also say, Alec and myself in the paper, part of the problem is people aren't taught to apologize. So your first opener to this podcast was you as a child and your mother trying to actually coach you about apology. Um, so I think to a certain extent, we can we can coach people. You know, they have to have a predisposition that allows them to apologize. But most of us do, in fairness. And so you can actually coach people in the art of apology, you know, because if people go to step three without realizing that they're, you know, that they haven't gone far enough. They don't know that, you know, unless they've been coached or trained in some way. And, you know, part of the problem, as we say in the paper, is that apology has traditionally been seen as a sign of weakness. And, you know, in a competitive culture, uh, you are almost uh, trained not to ever apologize. Uh, you never admit weakness. You never show vulnerability. Whereas we need to be teaching our small children to admit weakness, it's actually a strength, that ability to make yourself vulnerable and to open yourself, to expose yourself to rejection or uh, or non-acceptance. Um, we should be training our young children uh, to be able to do that because that is the strength and that will stand to them in the rest of their lives. You know, if you don't know how to apologize, you're going to go from one failed relationship to another failed relationship to another failed relationship one dispute to another dispute to another dispute. We're going to go from one world war to another world war. You know, um, so if we don't learn this stuff, it has consequences. And we're seeing even today the consequences on a global scale of conflict. As a parent, and you were talking about coaching children, you know, obviously I'm quite interested in this area. And it often strikes me when people see vulnerability as a weakness i'm often surprised at that yeah when you are making yourself vulnerable uh, to others you're exposing you know that weaker side of your personality and the way i see it is that's the ultimate act of bravery and courage yes indeed it's not that you're exposing the weaker side of your personality it's that you're accepting that you're only human you know because otherwise you're saying you're superhuman and you're not and if you can't accept that you're only human and that you make mistakes and that if a mistake is pointed out to you or or you know yourself you've made the mistake and you have the courage to make yourself vulnerable 
you know what? That's that's going to contribute to a happier life for you, a better life. You're going to be a better human as a result of it. So we absolutely should be coaching our children to um, to admit when they're wrong, to apologize when they need to, to feel empathy for other people, to expose their own vulnerability, because that's the only way they're going to develop to self-actualize, if you like, in terms of their own humanity. And, you know, I'm 57. <laughs> it took me a long time to get to get to this point. And does that mean I'm never going to apologize badly in the future or refuse to apologize in the yeah. future no it doesn't but at least i'll know i'm i'll know i'm doing it wrong or i'll know i'm i'm not doing it and um, and if i want to i'm a little bit more informed now about how how to go about it i coach a lot of people as you know i run a lot of leadership development programs as you know and this is an important aspect that people may not realize about leadership development is this whole notion of empathy for ourselves or that self-compassion or self-acceptance to, to acknowledge we are flawed. We are able to say, I took the wrong decision there. Let's do something else. And I think this is the crucial piece about your paper is there's many different elements here, different factors that when it comes to the workplace, then there are many different ways where this research actually could be very applicable to productivity, to enhancing teamwork. So what else about your research then would be important for our listeners to know? Well, let me share a few direct quotes with you, because whenever I talk about research, I like to talk about, you know, I talk about it from the perspective by experts and practitioners. So in terms of the kind of phrases they used about apology, they were saying potentially transformative, potentially pivotal, pivotal in terms of dispute resolution, the healing potential of apology. An interesting phase was apology trade. So, you know, to me, that was very interesting is that when there's a human, a conflict between two human beings, it's rarely that one person is all right and the other person is all wrong. Mm. And so what they found in mediation was that if one person apologizes, it often triggers what they called an apology trade. Say, for example, that example of the, the deaf person who, who felt that they had been badly treated and the HR manager says, I'm so, so sorry. You know, um, I didn't know the backstory. Um, I didn't understand the impact of the management decision. Sometimes when there's an apology, it triggers a, a trade, an opposite apology from the other person, because then they will come back and say, well, you know, I'm sorry, too, because, you know, I overreacted or I um you know, I said things as well, you know, in the heat of the moment that I'm not proud of. And so I, it's a two way communication when it works really well, because it's never all once one person's fault. So I thought that was really interesting. So in terms of it being a big factor in mediation, this mediator said apology would feature very highly, very, very high, very high. This is their exact words. I'm thinking of ones I've done in the last couple of months and an apology would feature in nearly every one of them. So here's another quote. Um, It can be a bit of an impediment if the person holds out for a full apology because companies are very reluctant to give that. Now, I think we're changing a bit on that, but that's that's a reference to the, uh, the potential impediment in mediation. This mediator says a genuine apology is like a tsunami. You're like... That's it. I'm packing my bags. I'm out of here. It just does it. And it works at the emotional level. It happens because hearing the other person tell their story for the first time has that effect. And just one more. uh, Sometimes a party will say, I'm really sorry. That shouldn't have happened. But the other party is so engrossed in their story that they've missed out. So this is an important point in relation to apology and mediation, because one of the things that the mediator said that they can contribute to this is where there's a gem of an apology emerges. But because the other person is so caught up in their own story and the emotion, they miss it. And so this is where you as the mediator can say, hold on, wait a minute. Did you did, did you hear what, what the person just said? And, and so pause what's happening. Uh, if they didn't hear it, ask the person to repeat it because it can go unnoticed. You know, a genuine apology can go unnoticed because we're all so worked up on and another thing and another thing and we're all caught up in our own in our own hurt 
So that's an important contribution uh, that that the mediator can make. But just, you know, generally speaking, there was three things in terms of the mediator's role in relation to apology. So number one, and the most frequently said, was around voicing and managing the potential of an emerging apology. So that's just what I've been referring to there. The, The role of the mediator in bringing it out, pulling it gently out of the conversation. The second most common thing was said was the facilitating the survival of the proffered apology among the parties. So when it emerges, making sure that it survives within that conversation. And the third thing was, as a role of the mediator, is testing the sincerity, the strength and the sincerity of the apology. So this is your kind of your reframing role as the as the mediator. When someone says something that is related to apology, is for you to do the kind of the reality testing and the genuine testing and just, you know, asking open questions or uh, reframing what they've said or repeating back to them what they've said um, yeah. can be very important in bringing, bringing out the sincerity or the genuineness of the apology. This episode was brought to you in association with the Mediation Foundation of Ireland, Europe's premier provider of mediation certification and training. For more information, check out mfi.ie. I think what's important for our listeners to know is what is reframing and what reframing is, is to, to really filter out what is actually that needs to be understood and heard by the other party. And that's a crucial piece uh, as a skill, as a mediator, to be able to reframe. Yeah. So, you know, the example of the deaf person, if the mediator had said, so what I'm hearing from you, Josephine, is that the decision made by the organisation the management decision that was made had a huge personal impact on you because of the timing and the need for you to be available to learn this communication technique with your new baby human uh, that was, you know, had a, had a critical timing dimension to it. That's reframing maybe of what she said. And it's really emphasizing what is, what's the core of what's actually been said here, you know, and, and again, with reframing, someone might, make a performative utterance they may say something and there's an apology in there um but it may not be obvious to the other person so the role of the mediator might be to reframe it in a way that makes it clearer yeah that that it contains the elements of apology and then work forward with that and it is about capturing the apology and also capturing what is it needs to be acknowledged or recognized or what are the needs of the other person that the other person may not understand when they're in that high intensity conflict. And that's what happens is is when we're in high intensity is that combative listening is going on that we don't hear it. And that's where the role of the mediator is so important to facilitate that. So you said earlier, uh, William, you know, can you coach someone into apology, into apology? I certainly think you can coach mediators into the the art of and the skill required of a mediator to to facilitate apology or to prevent apology from being an impediment or to nurture apology or the elements the the ger- the gem of apology when it starts um so i i and that's why myself and alec felt it was so important to write this paper and the paper was actually rejected by <laughs> by a number of journals academic writing is a is a brutal process and I'm so uh, grateful to the Journal of Mediation and Applied Conflict Analysis in the end who published it, because I think, you know, if you're if you're doing a, a, a course on mediation and so many people are, you know, lawyers, for example, who decide to add this skill to their to their portfolio could really benefit for from just reading the paper and thinking about what what's the implications of this for me or people who run mediation programs. You know, how can we how can we build this into our training of mediators so that it's something that they're conscious of so that they're tuned to actually pick up, wait a minute, something just happened there. Um, and then, you know, when it comes out that they, they, they're able to capitalize on it and, and just, just allow the parties to move towards the resolution. That's almost inevitable if it's a genuine heartfelt apology. Myself and Luke Monaghan with the mediation foundation of Ireland, we're running our training program as part of the private meetings then or the pre-mediation meeting, we would do 
a lot of, uh, I suppose, uh, an aspect of understanding the other, their perspective and also coaching them to say, what might the other person be thinking? So introducing that notion of conflict coaching as part of the private meeting, then it makes, it starts that aspect of being able to listen for the other party's perspective and listening. So you're really priming them for it. So when you go into the mediation, then, as a mediator, then you are able to facilitate that discussion more smoothly than otherwise if you haven't prepared that person to think about the other person's perspective. Yeah. So what you're doing there is encouraging empathy as well. You know, you're saying you're actually literally saying if you put yourself in their shoes, you know, what do you think are going to be the issues for them? Um, and they may be right or they may be wrong, but it's it's getting them into that mindset of put yourself in the other's shoes. Consider the possibility of empathy, whether they, they're able for it or not, it's another story. But yeah. definitely pre-mediation is really important. So a lot of the mediators that we spoke to would say that that's when people come in and and you say to them, what, what are you hoping for with this process? And they may say, I want an apology. And that's when you're able to explore, well, why is it so important for you to get an apology? And you're going beyond the position to the interests yeah. to say, well, you know, I want an apology because, you know, like I was so offended, like I was so hurt because I've been so loyal to this company and and that and this happens. Mm. And so then you're able to, you know, that's then in your uh, backpack as the mediator and and you're then able to facilitate the conversation around dealing with that need and that hurt without uh, without getting into a position versus position. You apologize. No, you apologize. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the apology is so important within the complaint it elicits the solution so they need recognition of the hurt they also need recognition that their loyalty is of imp- equal importance yeah. to the employer as well so yes apologies play such a crucial role in mediation yeah. don't they yeah because work is all about relationships yeah. you know and we're talking here about damaged relationships and if you want to move forward and that's another moderating factor. Do these people have an ongoing relationship is a factor. But also what was the nature of their relationship before this incident happened is an important moderator. You know, if you want to continue a relationship with this person, this is a breach of trust uh, that needs to be dealt with. And, you know, if you deal with it well, not only will you repair the relationship, but it'll go from strength to strength. If you do it badly, we're on a downward spiral here. This is, you know, this is, think about your personal relationships. It would be the same. You know, you know, if you, if you were in a conflict with your partner and you, you can get that bit right, uh, it'll strengthen your relationship. You know, you exposing your vulnerability, you accepting responsibility, you acknowledging the impact of your actions. You know, if the same thing happened to you, you may not have been hurt, but that's not your prerogative. You know, hurt is in the eye of the beholder. So you can't say, I don't know what you're making a big fuss about. I mean, all I did was X. That is not, (laughs) that's not, there's no place for that in apology, you know, but I just find it all fascinating, you know, and I've, this is only one paper. There's so much more. I find the whole thing of forgiveness, you know, there's another, there's another piece of work to be done around forgiveness because I'm fascinated with forgiveness and, and forgiveness doesn't mean forgetting. So you can, you can, and actually just the other day, when I grow up and, you know, I may never grow up, I'd love to do restorative justice. Like I'm really fascinated with the whole area of restorative justice and apology features very strongly there as well. So the other day I was at a webinar um, and the guest speaker at the webinar, this was a UK based webinar, was a guy who had killed somebody else. Um, you know, a young, he, when he was a young man, he punched somebody and they died. And uh, he was talking about his experience of restorative justice. And, you know, I was fascinated because apology featured, you know, very strongly there, but also the element of apology around a commitment not to do it again and taking action to make sure that, you know, that repentance is another interesting word. And really forgiveness benefits most the forgiver. You know, that you like if you can't forgive and you hold on to that hurt, you're damaging yourself most. And I don't know if something terribly bad happened to me, if I'd be able to forgive. It's it like and that takes a hell of a lot of courage. And the parents of that young man who was killed yeah. forgave the man who killed their son. I don't know now if I'd be up to that one at all. And yeah. 
fingers crossed, I hope I never have to find out. But uh, but forgiveness is a fascinating concept and repentance is a fascinating content, com, you know, because repentance is about action, is about a- action that you take. And that young man went on to uh, to, you know, to be a restorative justice practitioner himself. And he went to study law at university and his whole life changed, you know, because of his actions, but changed for the better with a lot of personal struggle along the way. So it's there's so much, you know, so much about it fascinates me because it's psychology, it's humanity, it's compassion, it's empathy, it's forgiveness, it's acceptance, it's vulnerability. And, you know, all of that stuff is stuff we need to think about, you know, ourselves as individuals. And we're all a work in progress. (laughs) Exactly. And this topic was all about just one component of that, which is an apology. And I want to remind our listeners now just uh, and I'm going to call this out. I'm going to save you the work here now, Deirdre, uh, because I'm going to ask you uh, in a few minutes how people might get in touch with you afterwards. So to summarize, the key elements from your paper, what an apology looks like, the key elements are the offender acknowledges and names the offense, accepts responsibility for it, acknowledges and names the effect of the offend- on the offended party, expresses regret, remorse, offers explanation without defense and puts himself at the mercy of the offended party. The last wee bit is the action. Mm. Um, because, you know, thinking back again to the apology for Bloody Sunday or, you know, the recent apology by senior government officials around the mother and baby homes, you can't get up there and make that speech if you're then going to block the redress mechanisms. You know, so it's about the action. You know, if you're genuinely sorry, you're going to take action to show that you're sorry and uh, you're going to make a commitment to not doing the same thing again. So that's the thing is people go so far down that line and they forget the last bit. You know, the action could be, you know, I refer to an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. And there are cultures where if you steal something, they cut your hand off so you can't do it again. I'm not endorsing anything like that. But, you know, say if you you really upset somebody and, um, you know, as a as a result of, of of apologizing and accepting your responsibility, you take some action of kindness that they may never know about. You do something for them that they may never know it's you. In fact, it's better if they don't know it's you. Um, uh, to as a as a kind of a part of your repentance, and it could be anything. It could be uh, you know that you pay their bill in a restaurant or the uh, you know it's anything at all. And it's you taking action to support the words that you've said that I know I did wrong. I know I was responsible. I shouldn't have done it. And I know it hurt you and had impact on you. So, yeah, so it's that last bit of action that that's important. And you were telling me your interest in restorative justice, which I'm also fascinated with. And that's the whole thing about this action piece is what do we need to restore? How do we restore the relationship to the status that it was? How do we restore your confidence? How do we restore whatever that was breached or trust broken or whatever it is? And I think that's the real key thing of that action is what needs to be restored. Yeah. And it's restoration on both sides. Mm. You know, it's like restorative justice. There's there's restoration needed on on both sides. Yeah. Um, but I think when it works, it can be incredibly powerful, you know, uh, in a criminal context like the one I mentioned, because you are bringing the person face to face with the consequences or the people who have been damaged by their action. And sometimes it can't be. The, the actual people. So say in cases of rape, it, it may not be appropriate or or sensible at all to bring the rapist in front of the person who was raped, but to bring that person in front of somebody who was raped and to hear about the consequences of that from their perspective can be really, really powerful when it's done. But I'd my my little reservation around restorative justice is to be very careful of the line between coaching people who have committed crime into how to use restorative justice as a way of minimizing the penalty on them. It's back to that selfish, selfish versus selfless. 
if they're trained to make an apology, even if they kind of want to, um, on the basis that it's going to reduce their sentence, I, I have a bit of a problem with that. Um, so it's a fine line between uh, between commodifying apology and and nurturing apology, a genuine apology. This is a topic that could go on and on. It is so fascinating. Dear, that this is all the time that we have for today. If people were to find about more about your work, about this powerful paper that you have written with Alec Coakley, uh, how might they do so? So, um, so because it's a passion, it's not, it's not, you know, it's like we wrote this, both of us, because we're passionate about this area. Anybody is welcome to contact us anytime. I mean, we'll talk to anybody, anytime, anywhere about this if they would like to hear more. The paper is freely available because it's there to be read and, and agreed with or disagreed with. So we'd, we'd welcome any communication, good, bad or, or indifferent, um, you know, um, and, you know, that's our role is just to uh, be the messenger for the, uh, the lessons that emerge from this research from actual conflict resolution practitioners and mediators. Um, and so we'd, we'd, we'd absolutely be, we'd welcome contact from anybody. Um, and I live in the business school of NUI Galway and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. So, uh, so it's deirdre.corn at nuigalway.ie. That is great, Deirdre. I will put that, all those links in the podcast description. Deirdre, it's been such a pleasure talking to you again today. Always a pleasure talking to you, William. And thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're most welcome. <laughs> That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with the podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provider executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization. <laughs>